Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. Obviously, I'm doing something a little different this week. No music, no sound effects, just me in my raw form and my squeaky chair. I've received a few notes here and there over different platforms asking for episodes with no sound effects. Don't worry, this isn't a permanent change or anything. I just like to listen when you guys make polite requests, and so far, everyone who has mentioned this to me has been incredibly nice about it. I completely understand the need for different things to relax to, and I want this show to become a catalog of sorts where nightly you can pick and choose what kind of experience you want or need to relax to, whether it's losing yourself in something gruesome like the smile, needing something with just some random binaural relaxing sounds to drown out your neighbor's car alarm, like the organ ghosts episode, or if you just want a story told to you by a familiar voice with no frills, and that is what tonight will be. By the way, I took my brand new Tascam DR40 with me on my road trip, and I got a lot of cool sounds, so there will be a lot of cool sound effects coming up if this isn't your cup of tea. I got several different beaches and waves, sounds of the forest, crowd sounds, I even got someone singing the national anthem at a large event, and I don't know when that will come in handy, but I'm sure one day I'll need it, and I will be very happy that I have it. If you want to listen to any of the sounds that I create, you may have noticed that I always credit freesound.org and all of the creators whose sounds I use. I am also on freesound.org and I love to upload most of the sounds I create or record for anyone to use totally for free. So if you're thinking of starting your own podcast or YouTube channel, I highly recommend that website. I also have it under where you don't even have to credit me if you, if you use my sound effects. I just want you to take them and be free just because I like to give back because free sound has seriously saved my podcast. I mean, in the very beginning, I barely knew how to use my own microphone, much less how to record fully sounds. So my username on that site is Shelby shark, all one word. If you're interested in hearing some of my sound bites, you may even be able to guess which ones were used in which stories. So this week, I'm going to read a couple more stories from the Pan Book of Horror Stories series. First up is by Alexander Wolcott, and it is called Moonlight Sonata. The only sounds you will hear this week are probably going to be me turning pages because I'm actually reading this out of the book, so I am sorry for that, for my non-sound effect people. I hope that isn't too distracting. Okay. If this report were to be published in its own England, I would have to cross my fingers and a little forward explaining that all the characters were fictitious, which stern requirement of the British libel law would embarrass me slightly because none of the characters is fictitious in the story told to Catherine Cornell by Clemence Dane and by Catherine Cornell told to me chronicles what, to the best of my knowledge and belief, actually befell a young English physician whom I shall call Alvin Barak, because that does not happen to be his name. It is an account of a hitherto unreported adventure he had two years ago when he went down to Kent to visit an old friend. Let's call him Ellery Cazalette, who spent most of his days on the links and most of his nights 
wondering how he would ever pay the death duties on the collapsing family manor house, to which he had indignantly fallen heir. This house was a shabby little cousin to Compton Winyates, with roof tiles of Tudor red, making it cozy in the noonday sun, and a hoarse bell which, from the clock tower, had been contemptuously scattering the hours like coins ever since Henry VIII was a rosely stripling. Within, Cazalette could afford only a doddering couple to fend for him, and the once sumptuous gardens did much as they pleased under the care of a single gardener. I think I must risk giving the gardener's real name, for none I could invent would have so appropriate a flavor. It was John Scripture, and he was assisted, from time to time, by an aged and lunatic father who, in his lucid intervals, would be let out from his captivity under the ease of the lodge to potter amid the lewd, topiarian extravagance of the hedges. The doctor was to come down when he could, with a promise of some good golf, long nights of exquisite silence, and a ghost or two thrown in if his fancy ran that way. It was characteristic of his rather ponderous humor that, in writing to fix a day, he addressed Cazalette as the creeps, Seven Oaks, Kent. When he arrived, it was to find his host away from home and not due back until all hours. Barak was to dine alone with a reproachful setter for a companion and not wait up. His bedroom on the ground floor was beautifully paneled from footboard to ceiling, but some misguided housekeeper under the fourth George had fallen upon the lovely woodwork with a can of black varnish. The dowry, brought by a Cazalet bride of the mauve decade, had been invested in a few vintage bathrooms, and one of these had replaced a prayer closet that once opened into this bedroom. There was only a candle to read by, but the light of a full moon came waveringly through the wind-stirred vines that half-curtained the mullioned windows. In this museum, Barak dropped off to sleep. He did not know how long he had slept when he found himself awake again, and conscious that something was astir in the room. It took him a moment to place the movement, but at last, in a patch of moonlight, he made out a hunched figure that seemed to be sitting with bent, engrossed head in the chair by the door. It was the hand, or rather the whole arm, that was moving, tracing a recurrent if irregular course through the air. At first, the gesture was teasingly half-familiar, and then Barak recognized it as the one a woman would make when embroidering. There would be a hesitation, as if the needle were being thrust through some taut, resistant material, and then, each time, the long, swift, sure pull of the thread. To the startled guest, this seemed the least menacing activity he had ever heard ascribed to a ghost, but just the same, he had only one idea, and that was to get out of that room with all possible dispatch. His mind made a hasty reconnaissance. The door into the hall was out of the question, for madness lay in the way. At least he would have to pass right by that weaving arm. Nor did he relish a blind plunge into the thorny shrubbery beneath the window and a barefoot scamper across the frosty turf. Of course, there was the bathroom, but that was small comfort if he could not get out of it by another door. In a spasm of concentration, he remembered that he had seen another door, 
just at the moment of this realization, he heard the comfortingly actual sound of a car coming up the drive, and guessed that it was his host returning. In one magnificent movement, he leaped to the floor and bolted its door behind him. The floor of the room beyond was quilted with moonlight. Wading through that, he arrived breathless but unmolested in the corridor. Farther along, he could see the lamp left burning in the entrance hall and hear the clatter of his host closing the front door. As Barak came hurrying out of the darkness to greet him, Cazalette boomed his delight at such affability, and famished by his long, cold ride, proposed an immediate raid on the larder. The doctor, already sheepish at his recent panic, said nothing about it and was all for food at once. With lighted candles held high, the foraging party descended on the offices, and mine host was decanting on the merits of cold roast beef, cheddar cheese, and milk as a light midnight snack when he stumbled over a bundle on the floor. With a cheerful curse at the old goody of the kitchen who was always leaving something about, he bent to see what it was this time and let out a whistle of surprise. Then, by two candles held low, he and the doctor saw something they will not forget while they live. It was the body of the cook, just the body. The head was gone. On the floor alongside lay a bloody cleaver. Old scripture, by God, Cazalette cried out. And in a flash, Barak guessed. Still clutching a candle in one hand, he dragged his companion back through the interminable house to the room from which he had fled, motioning him to be silent, tiptoeing the final steps. That precaution was wasted, for a regiment could not have disturbed the rapt contentment of the ceremony still in progress within. The old lunatic had not left his seat by the door. Between his knees, he still held the head of the woman he had killed. Scrupulously, happily, crooning over his work, he was plucking out the gray hairs, one by one. I've always been fascinated by, and I think a lot of people have been too, because there are several documentaries on it, by these women who fall in love with serial killers, or not necessarily serial killers, but just bad people in general. You know, the women who were at Ted Bundy or Richard Ramirez's, or honestly, you could name probably almost any serial killer, and there would be women fawning over them at their here, their own trials where they're describing all of the terrible and disgusting things they did to people. This story kind of reminded me of that. Um, they really describe the feeling that these women sometimes I've heard them describe in this way of like this, they're almost jealous of the victims because the victims even get these, these killers attention, which is highly interesting um, I'm sure much more learned people than me have studied this and they can tell you more about it. All I know is that it's pretty fascinating. And this story was, I believe it was written a little before we really started looking into this. I, I don't know if it's appropriate to call it a phenomenon, but 
they, this story I think was written in the forties or fifties and it kind of has to do about with that. So I was really interested to see it and see that people were almost noticing this behavior already. Um, but yeah, this is various temptations by William Sansom. His name unknown. He had been strangling girls in the Victoria district. After talking, no one knew what to them by the gleam of brass bedsteads. After lonely hours standing on pavements with people passing. After perhaps in those hot July streets with blue sky blinding high above and hazed with burnt petrol. A dazzled, head-aching hatred of some broad, scarlet cinema poster and the black leather taxis. After sudden, hopeless ecstasies at some rounded girl's figure passing in rubber and silk. After the hours of slow crumbs in the empty milk bar and the balneal reek of grim tiled lavatories. After all the day town's faceless hours, the evening town might have whirled quicker on him with the death of the day. The yellow painted lights of the night have caused the minutes to accelerate, and his fears to recede, and a cold courage then to arm itself. Until the wink, the terrible ascent of some soft girl, smiling towards the night. The beer, the port, the meat pies, the bedsteads. Each of the four found had been throttled with coarse thread. This dry and the color of hemp had in each case been drawn from the frayed ends of the small carpet squares in those linoleum bedrooms. A man, said the papers, has been asked by the police to come forward in connection with the murders, etc., etc. Ronald Rakes, five foot nine, gray eyes, thin brown hair, brown tweed coat, gray flannel trousers, black soft brim hat. A girl called Clara, a plain girl, and by profession an invisible mender, lay in her large, white, comfortable bed with its polished wood headpiece and its rose quilt. Faded blue curtains draped down their long, soft cylinders, their dark recesses, and sometimes these columns moved, for the balcony windows were open for the hot July night. The night was still, airless, Yet sometimes these queer, causeless breezes, like the turning breath of a sleeper, came to rustle the curtains, and then, as suddenly, left them graven again in the stifling air, like curtains that had never moved. And this girl, Clara, lay reading lazily the evening paper. She wore an old wool bed jacket, faded yet rich against her pale and bloodless skin. She was alone, expecting no one. It was a night of restitution, of early supper and washing under clothes and stockings, an early night for a read and a long sleep. Two or three magazines nestled in the eider-downed bend of her knees, 
but saving for the last glossy, luxurious magazines, she lay now glancing through the paper, half reading, half tasting the quiet, sensing how secluded she was, though the street was only one floor below, in her own bedroom yet with the heads of unsuspecting people passing only feet beneath. Unknown footsteps approached and retreated on the pavement beneath, footsteps that even on this still summer night sounded muffled, like footsteps heard on the pavement of a fog. She lay listening for a while, then turned again to the paper, read again a bullying black headline, relating the deaths of some hundreds of demonstrators somewhere in another hemisphere, and again let her eyes trail away from the weary grayish block of words beneath. The corner of the papers and its newsprint struck a harsh note of offices and tube trains against the soft texture of the rose quilt. She frowned and was thus just about to reach for one of the more lustrous magazines, when her eyes noted across the page a short, squat headline above a blackly typed column about the Victoria murders. She shuffled more comfortably into bed and concentrated hard to scramble up the delicious paragraphs. But they had found nothing. No new murder, nowhere nearer to making an arrest. Yet, after an official preamble, there occurred one of those theoretic dissertations such as is often inserted to color the progress of apprehension when no facts provide themselves. It appeared, it was thought, that the Victoria Strangler suffered from a mania similar to that which had possessed the infamous Ripper. That is, the victims were mostly of a certain profession. It might be thus concluded that the Victoria murderer bore the same maniacal grudge against such women. At this, Clara put the paper down, thinking, well, for one thing, she never did herself up like those sort. In fact, she never did herself up at all. And what would be the use? Instinctively, then, she turned to look across to the mirror on her dressing table, saw there her worn, pale face and sack-colored hair, and felt instantly neglected. Down in her plain-feeling body, there stirred again that familiar envy, the impotent grudge that still came to her at least once, every day of her life. That nobody had ever bothered to think deeply for her, neither loving, nor hating, nor in any way caring. For a moment then, the thought came in whatever had happened in those bedrooms, however horrible, that murderer had at least felt deeply for his subject. The subject girl was charged with positive attractions that had forced him to act. There could hardly be such a thing in those circumstances, at least, as a disinterested murderer. Hate and love were often held to be variations of the same obsessed emotion. When it came to murder, to the high, impassioned pitch of murder, to such an intense concentration of one person on another, then it seemed that a divine paralysis, something very much like love, possessed the murderer. Clara put the paper aside with finality, 
for whenever the question of her looks occurred. Then she forced herself to think immediately of something else, to ignore what had for some years grown into an obsession, leading only to hours wasted with self-pity and idle depression, so that now she picked up the first magazine and scrutinized with a false intensity the large and laughing figure in several colors and few clothes of a motion picture queen. However, rather than pointing her momentary depression, the picture comforted her. Had it been a real girl in the room, she might have been further saddened. But these pictures of fabulous people, separated by the convention of the page and the distance of their world of celluloid fantasy, instead represented the image of earlier personal dreams, comforting dreams of what then she hoped one day she might become. When that hope, which is youth's unique asset, outweighed the material attribute of which she in fact was. In the quiet air, fogging the room with such palpable stillness, the turning of the brittle magazine page made its own decisive crackle. Somewhere outside in the summer night, a car slurred past, changing its gear, rounded the corner and sped off on a petulant note of acceleration to nowhere. The girl changed her position in bed, easing herself deeper into the security of the bedclothes. Gradually, she became absorbed so that soon her mind was again ready to wander, but this time within her own imagining outside the plane of that bedroom. She was idly thus transported into a wished-for situation between herself and the owner of the shop where she worked. In fact, she spoke aloud her decision to take the following Saturday off. This her employer instantly refused. Then, still speaking aloud, she presented her reasons, insisted, and at last the blood beginning to throb in her forehead, handed in her notice. This must have suddenly frightened her, bringing her back abruptly to the room, and she stopped talking. She laid the magazine down, looked around the room, still that feeling of invisible fog. Perhaps there was indeed mist. The furniture looked more than usually stationary. She tapped with her finger on the magazine. It sounded loud, too loud. Her mind returned to the murderer. She ceased tapping and looked quickly at the shut door. The memory of those murders must have lain in the back of her mind throughout the past minutes, gently elevating her with the compounding unconscious excitement that news sometimes brings. The sensation that somewhere, something has happened revitalizing life. But now, she suddenly shivered. Those murders had happened in Victoria, the neighboring district only, in fact, she counted, five, six streets away. The curtains began to move. Her eyes were round and at them in the first flickering moment. This time, they not only shuddered, but seemed to eddy and then to belly out. A coldness grasped and held the ventricles of her heart, and the curtains, the whole length of the rounded blue curtains, 
moved towards her across the carpet. Something was pushing them. They traveled out towards her, then the ends rose, sailing, sailed wide, opened to reveal nothing but the night, the empty balcony. Then, as suddenly, collapsed and receded back to where they had hung motionless before. She let out the deep breath that she had held all that time, only then a breath of wind again, a curious swell on the compressed summer air, and now again the curtains hung still. She gulped sickly, crumpled, and decided to shut the window. Better not to risk that sort of fright again. One never knew what one's heart might do. But, just then, she hardly liked to approach those curtains, as the atmosphere of a nightmare cannot be shaken off for some minutes after waking. So the curtains held for a while their ambiance of dread. Clara lay still. In a few minutes, those fears quietened. But now, forgetting the sense of fright, she made no attempt to leave the bed. It was too comfortable. She would read again for a while. She turned over and picked up her magazine. Then, a short while later, stretching, she half turned to the curtains again. They were wide open. A man was standing exactly in the center, outlined against the night outside, holding the curtains apart with his two hands. Ron rakes, five foot nine, gray eyes, thin brown hair, brown sports jacket, black hat, stood on the balcony holding the curtains aside, looking in at this girl, twisted round in her white sheeted bed. He held the curtains slightly behind him. He knew the street to be dark. He felt safe. He wanted to breathe deeply after the short climb of the painter's ladder, but instead held it. Above all, kept quite still. The girl was staring straight at him, terrified, struck in the pose of an actress, suddenly revealed on her bedroom stage in its flood of light. In a moment, she would scream. But something here was unusual. Some quality lacking from the scene he had expected, and he concentrated even in that moment when he knew himself to be in danger, letting some self-assured side of his mind wander and wonder what could be wrong. He thought hard, screwing up his eyes to concentrate against the other unsteady excitements aching in his head. He knew how he had got here. He remembered the dull, disconsolate hours waiting round the station, following two girls without result, then walking away from the lighted crowds in these darker streets and suddenly seeing a glimpse of this girl through the lighted window. Then that curious, unreasoned idea had crept over him. He had seen the latter, measured the distance, then scoffed at himself for risking such an escapade. Anyone might have seen him. And then what? Arrest for housebreaking? Burglary? He had turned, walked away, then walked back. That extraordinary excitement rose and held him. He had gritted his teeth told himself not to be such a fool, to go home. Tomorrow would be a fresh, a fine day to spend. 
but the next hours of the restless night exhibited themselves, sounding in their emptiness, so that it had seemed too early to give in and admit the day worthless. A sensation, then, of ability, of dexterous, clever power had taken him. He had loitered near the ladder, looking up and down the street. The lamps were dull, the street empty. Once a car came slurring past, changed gear, accelerated off petulantly into the night, away to nowhere. The sound emphasized the quiet, the protection of that deserted hour. He had put a hand on the ladder. It was the same as any simple choice. Taking a drink, or not taking a drink. The one action might lead to some detrimental end. To more drinks, a night out a headache in the morning, and would thus be best avoided. But the other, that action of taking, was pleasant and easy, and the moral forehead argued that, after all, it could do no harm. So quickly, telling himself he would climb down again in a second, this man Rakes had prized himself over the lashed night plank and had run up the ladder, on the balcony, he had paused by the curtains, breathless, now exhilarated in his ability, agile and alert as an animal, and had heard the sound of the girl turning in bed and the flick of her magazine page. A moment later, the curtains had moved. Nimbly, he had stepped aside. A wind. He had looked down at the street. The wind populated the curbs with dangerous movement. He had parted the curtains saw the girl lying there alone, and silently stepped onto the threshold. Now, when at last she screamed, a hoarse, diminutive sob, he knew he must move, and so soundlessly on the carpet went towards her. As he moved, he spoke, I don't want to hurt you. And then, knowing that he must say something more than that, which she could hardly have believed, and knowing also, that above all, he must keep talking all the time with no pause to let her attention scream. Really, I don't want to hurt you. You mustn't scream. Let me explain. But don't you see, if you scream, I shall have to stop you. Even with a smile, as soft a gesture as his soft, quick speaking voice, he pushed forward his coat pocket, his hand inside, so that the girl might recognize what she must have seen in detective stories and even believe it to be his hand or perhaps a pipe, yet not be sure. But I won't shoot, and you'll promise, won't you, to be good and not scream, while I tell you why I'm here. You think I'm a burglar, but that's not true. It's right, I need a little money, only a little cash, ten bob even, because I'm in trouble, not dangerous trouble, but let me tell you, please, please listen to me, miss. His voice continued softly speaking, talking all the time, quietly and never stuttering, nor hesitating, nor leaving a pause. Gradually, though her body remained alert and rigid, the girl's face relaxed. He stood at the foot of the bed, in the full light of the bedside lamp, leaning awkwardly on one leg, the cheap material of his coat ruffled and papery. Still talking, always talking, he took off his hat lowered himself gently to sit at the end of the bed, rather to put her at her ease than to encroach further for himself, 
as he sat. He apologized. Then, never pausing, he told her a story, which was nearly true, about his escape from a detention camp, the cruelty of his long sentence for a trivial theft, the days thereafter of evasion, the furtive search of casual employment, and then, worst of all, the long hours of time on his hands, the vacuum of time wandering, time wasting on the cafe clocks, lampposts of time waiting on blind corners, time walking away from uniforms, time of the headaching clocks loitering at the slow pace of death towards his sole refuge. Sleep. And this was nearly true, only that he had admitted that his original crime had been one of sexual assault. He omitted those other dark occasions during the past three weeks, but he omitted those events because, in fact, for he had forgotten them, they could only be recollected with difficulty as episodes of vague elation, dark and blurred, as an undeveloped photograph of which the image should be known yet puzzles with its indeterminate shape, its hints of light in the darkness, and always the feeling that it should be known, that it once surely existed. This was also like anyone trying to remember exactly what had been done between any two specific hours on some date of a previous month, two hours framed by known engagements yet themselves blurred into an exasperating and hungry screen of dots, dark, almost appearing, convolving, receding. So... Gradually, as he offered himself to the girl's pity, that bed-clothed hump of figure relaxed. Once her lips flexed their corners in the beginning of a smile, into her eyes once crept the strange, coquettish look, pained and immeasurably tender, with which a woman takes into her arms a strange child. The moment of danger was past. There would be no scream. And since now, on her part, she seemed to feel no danger from him, then it became very possible that the predicament might even appeal to her. To any girl nourished by the kind of drama that filled the magazines littering her bed, as well, he might look strained and ill. So he let his shoulders droop for the soft extraction of her last sympathy. Yet, as he talked on, as twice he instilled into the endless story a compliment to her, and as twice her face seemed to shine for a moment with sudden life. Nevertheless, he sensed that not all was right with this apparently well-contrived affair. For this, he knew, should be near the time when he would be edging nearer to her, dropping his hat, picking it up, and shifting thus unostensibly his position. It was near the time when he would get near enough to attempt, in one movement, the risk that could never fail, either way, accepted or rejected. But he was neither moving forward nor wishing to move. Still he talked, but now more slowly, with less purpose. He found that he was looking at her detachedly, no longer mixing her image with his words, and thus losing the words their energy. Looking now, not at the conceived image of something painted by the desiring brain, but as at something unexpected, not entirely known, as if, instead of peering forward, his head was leant back, surveying, listening, as a dog perhaps leans his head to one side listening, for the whistled sign to regulate the bewildering moment. But no such sign came. 
and through his words, straining at the diamond cunning that maintained him, he tried to reason out this perplexity. He annotated carefully what he saw. A white face, ill-white, reddened faintly around the nostrils, pink and dry at the mouth, and a small, fat mouth, puckered and fixed under its long, upper lip, and eyes also small, yet full-irised and thus like brown pellets under eyebrows low and thick, and hair that color of lusterless hemp, now tied with a bow so that it fell down either side of her cheeks as lank as string, and around her thin neck, a thin gold chain just glittering above the dull blue wool of that bed jacket, blue brittle wool against the ill white skin, and behind a white pillow and the dark wooden head of the bed, curved like an inverted shield, unattractive, not attractive as expected, not exciting. Yet, where? Where before had he remembered something like this, something impelling, something strangely sympathetic, and there was no doubt, earnestly wanted? Later, in contrast, there flashed across his memory the color of other faces, a momentary reflection from the scarlet-lipped face on one of the magazine covers, and he remembered that these indeed troubled him, but in a different and accustomed way. These pricked at him in their busy way, lanced him hot, ached into his head so that it grew light, as if in strong sunlight, and then much later, Long after this girl, too, had nervously began to talk, after they had talked together, they made a cup of tea in her kitchen, and then, since the July dawn, showed through the curtains, she made a bed for him on the sofa in the sitting room, a bed of blankets and a silk cushion for his head. Two weeks later, the girl, Clara, came home at five o'clock in the afternoon, carrying three parcels. They contained two colored ties, six yards of white material for her wedding dress, and a box of thin red candles. As she walked towards her front door, she looked up at the windows and saw they were shut. As it should have been, Ron was out as he had promised. It was his birthday, 32 for a few hours, Clara was to concentrate on giving him a birthday tea, forgetting for one evening the fabulous question of that wedding dress. Now she ran up the stairs, opened the second door, and saw there in an instant that the flat had been left especially clean, tidied into a straight, unfamiliar rigor. She smiled. How thoughtful he was, despite his strangeness. And she threw her parcels down on the sofa disarranging the cushions in her tolerant happiness, delighting in this. Then she was up again and arranging things. First, the lights. Silk handkerchiefs wound over the tops of the shades, for they shone too brightly. Next, the tablecloth, white and fresh, soon decorated with small tinsels left over from Christmas, red crackers with feathered paper ends, globes gleaming like crimson, quicksilver, silver and copper snowflakes, He'll like this, a dash of color. It's his birthday. Perhaps we could have gone out. But in a way, it's nicer in. 
Anyway, it must be in with him on the run. I wonder where he is now. I hope he went straight to the pictures. In the dark, it's safe. We did have fun doing him up different, a nice blue suit, distinguished, and the mustache is nice. Funny how you get used to that look. He looks just the same as that first night. Quite a quiet one. Says he likes to be quiet too, a plain life and a peaceful one. But a spot of color. Oh, it'll do him some good. Moving efficiently, she hurried to the kitchen and fetched the hidden cake, placed it exactly on the center of the table, wound a length of gold veiling round the bottom, undid the candle parcel and expertly sat the candles, one to thirty-one, round the white iced circle. She wanted to light them, but instead put down the matches and picked off the cake one silver pellet and placed it on the tip of her tongue then impatiently went for the knives and forks. All these actions were performed with that economy and swiftness of movement peculiar to women who arrange their own houses, a movement so sure that it seems to suggest dislike, so that it brings with each adjustment a grimace of disapproval, though nothing by anyone could be more approved. Thirty-one candles. I won't put the other one. It's nicer for him to think he's still thirty-one. Or, I suppose men don't mind. Still, do it. You never know what he really likes. A quiet one, but ever so thoughtful and tender. And that's a funny thing. You'd think he might have tried something, the way he is on the loose. A regular Mr. Proper. Doesn't like this, doesn't like that, doesn't like dancing, doesn't like the way some girls go about, doesn't like lipstick, nor the way some of them dress. Of, of course he's right, they make themselves up plain silly, but you'd think a man. Now over to the sideboard, and from that polished oak cupboard, take very carefully one, two, three, four fat quart bottles of black stout and a half bottle of port. Group them close together on the table. Put the shining glasses just by, make it look like a real party. And the cigarettes, a colored box of fifty. Crinkly paper serviettes. And last of all, a long roll of paper, vivid green, on which she had traced with a ruler and a pot of red paint. Happy birthday, Ron. This was now hung between two wall lights, old gas jets corded with electricity and shaded, and then she went to the door and switched on all the lights. The room warmed instantly. Each light threw off a dark glow, as though it was part of its own shadow. Clara went to the curtains and half drew them, cutting off some of the daylight, then drew them all together, and the table gleamed into sudden nightlight, golden white and warmly red with the silver cake sparkling in the center. She went into the other room to dress. Sitting by the table with a mirror, she took off her hat and shook her head. In the mirror, her hair seemed to tumble about, not pinned severely as usual, but free and flopping. She had had it waved, the face freckled with pinpoints of the mirror's tarnish, looked pale and far away. She remembered she had much to do, and turned busily to a new silk blouse, hoping that Ron would still be in the pictures, beginning again to think of him. She was not certain still that he might not be the man who the police wanted in connection with those murders. 
She had thought it, of course, when he first appeared. Later, his tender manner had dissipated such a first impression. He had come to supper that following night, and again had stayed. Thus, also, for the next nights. It was understood that she was giving him sanctuary, and for his part, he insisted on paying her when he could again risk inquiring for work. It was an exciting predicament, of the utmost daring for anyone of Claire's way of life. Incredible. But the one important and overriding fact had been that suddenly, even in this shocking way, there had appeared a strangely attractive man who had expressed immediately an interest in her. She knew that he was also interested in his safety, but there was much more to his manner than simply this. His tenderness and his extraordinary preoccupation with her, staring, listening, striving to please and addressing to her all the attentions of which, through her declining youth, she had been starved. She knew, moreover, that these attentions were real and not affected. Had they been false, nevertheless, she would have been flattered, but as it was, the new horizons became dreamlike, drunken, impossible. To a normally frustrated, normally satisfied, normally hopeful woman, the immoral possibility that he might be that murderer would have frozen the relationship in its seed. But such was the waste and the want in lonely Clara that, despite every ingrained convention, the great boredom of her dull years had seemed to gather and move inside of her, had heaved itself up like a monstrous sleeper, turning, rearing, and then subsiding on its other side with a flop of finality, a sigh of pleasure, welcoming now anything, anything but a return to the old dull days of nothing. There came the whisper, now or never, but there was no sense, as with the other middle-aged escapists of desperation. This chance had landed squarely on her doorstep, there was no striving, no doubt. It had simply happened. Then, the instinctive knowledge of love. And finally, to seal the atrophy of all hesitation. His proposal of marriage. So that now, when she sometimes wondered whether he was the man the police wanted, her loyalty to him was so deeply assumed that it seemed she was really thinking of somebody else, or of him as another figure at a remove of time. The murders had certainly stopped, yet only two weeks ago, and anyway, the man in the tweed coat was only wanted in connection with the murders. That in itself became indefinite. Besides, there must be thousands of tweed coats and black hats, and besides, there were thousands of coincidences of all kinds every day. So... Shrugging her shoulders and smiling at herself for puzzling her mind so, when she knew there could be no answer, she returned to her dressing table. Here her face grew serious, as again the lips pouted, the down-drawn disapproval that meant she contemplated an act of which she approved. Her hand hesitated, then opened one of the dressing table drawers. It disappeared inside, feeling to the very end of the drawer, searching there in the dark. Her lips parted, her eyes lost focus, as though she were scratching deliciously at her back. At length, the hand drew forth a small parcel. Once more she hesitated, while the fingers itched at the knotted string. 
Suddenly they took hold of the knot and scrambled to untie it. The brown paper parted. Inside lay a lipstick and a box of powder. Just a little, a very little. I must look pretty. I must tonight. She pouted her lips and drew across them a thick, scarlet smear, then frowned, exacerbated by such extravagance. She started to wipe it off, but it left boldly impregnated, already its mark. She shrugged her shoulders, looked fixedly into the mirror. What she saw pleased her, and she smiled. As late as seven, when it was still light but the strength had left the day, when on the trees and on the gardens of squares there extended a moist and cool shadow, and even over the tram-torn streets a cooling sense of business past descended. Ronald Rakes left the cinema and hurried to get through the traffic and away in those quieter streets that led towards Clara's flat. After a day of gritted heat, the sky was clouding. A few shops and orange-painted snack bars had turned on their electric lights. By these lights, in the homing hurry of the traffic, Rakes felt the presence of the evening and clenched his jaw against it. That restlessness, vague as the hot breath before a headache, lightly metallic as the taste of a fever, must be avoided. He skirted the traffic dangerously, hurrying for the quieter streets away from the garish junction, between the green and purple tiles of a public house and the red-framed window of a passport photographer's, he entered at last into the duller, quieter perspective of a street of brown brick houses. Here was instant relief, as though a drought of wind had cooled physically his head. He thought of the girl, the calm flat, the safety, the rightness, and the sanctuary there. Extraordinary, this sense of rightness and order that he felt with her, ease, relief, and constant need, not at all like being in love, like being very young again with a protective nurse. Looking down the pavement cracks, he felt pleasure in them. Pleasure reflected from a sense of gratitude, and he started planning to get a job next week, to end his hiding about, to do something for her in return, and then he remembered that, even at that moment, she was doing something more for him, arranging some sort of treat, a birthday supper, and thus tenderly grateful, he slipped open the front door and he climbed the stairs. There were two rooms, the sitting room and the bedroom. He tried the sitting room door, which was regarded as his, but found it locked. But in the instant of rattling the knob, Clara's voice came. Ron, Ron, go into the bedroom. Put your hat there. Don't come in till you're quite ready. Surprise! Out in the dark passage, looking down at the brownish bare linoleum, he smiled again, nodded, called a greeting and went into the bedroom. He washed, combed his hair, glancing now and then towards the closed connecting door, a last look in the mirror, a nervous washing gesture of his hands, and he was over at the door and opening it. Coming from the daylit bedroom, this other room appeared like a picture of night, like some dimly lit tableau recessed in a waxwork show. He was momentarily dazzled, not by light, but by a yellow darkness, a promise of other unfocused light. The murky bewilderment of a room entered from strong sunlight. But a voice sang out to help him. 
Ron, happy birthday. And, reassured, his eyes began to assemble the room. The table, crackers, shining cake, glasses and bottles, the green paper greeting, the glittering tinsel and those downcast shaded lights. Round the cake burned with little upright knives of those thirty-one candles, each yellow blade winking. The ceiling disappeared in the darkness. All the light was lowered down upon the table and the carpet. He stood for a moment, still shocked, robbed still of the room he had expected. It's cold and clockless daylight, it's motionless smell of dust. An uncertain figure that was Clara came forward from behind the table. Her waist and legs in light, then upwards in shadow. Her hand stretched out towards him, her voice laughed from the darkness, and thus, with the affirmation of her presence, the feeling of shock mysteriously cleared. The room fell into a different perspective, and instantly he saw with gratitude how carefully she had arranged that festive table. Indeed, how prettily reminiscent it was of festivity, old Christmases and parties held long ago in some separate life. Happier, he was able to watch the glasses fill with rich black stout, saw the red wink of the port dropped in to sweeten it, raised his glass in a toast. Then they stood in the half-light of that upper shadow, drank, joked, talked to themselves into the climate of celebration. They moved round the table with its bright low center light, like figures about a shaded gambling board, so vivid the clarity of their lowered hands, the sheen of his suit, and the gleam of her stockings, yet with their faces veiled and diffused. Then, when two of the bottles were already empty, they sat down. Rakes blinked in the new light, everything sparkled suddenly, all things around him seemed to wink. He laughed, abruptly, too excited. Clara was bending away from him, stretching to cut the cake. As he raised his glass, he saw her back from the corner of his eye, over the crystal rim of his glass, and held it then, undrunk. He stared at the shining white blouse, the concisely corrugated folds of the knife-edged wave of her hair. Clara? The strangeness of the room dropped its curtain round him again heavily. Clara, a slow voice mentioned in his mind, has merely bought herself a new blouse and waved her hair. He nodded, accepting this automatically, but the stout to which he was not used to weighed inside his head, as though some heavy circular hat was being pressed down, wreathing leadenly where its brim circled, forcing a lightness within that seemed to balloon airily upwards. Unconsciously, his hand went to his forehead, and at that moment, Clara turned her face towards him, setting it on one side of the full light, blowing out some of those little red candles, laughing as she blew. The candle flames flickered and winked like jewels close to her cheek. She blew her cheeks out so that they became full and rounded, then laughed so that her white teeth gleamed between oil-rich red lips. Thin candle threads of black smoke, needled curling by her hair. She saw something strange in his eyes. Her voice said, Why, Ron, you haven't a headache. Not yet anyway, eh, dear? Now he no longer laughed naturally, but felt the stretch of his lips as he tried to smile in denial of the headache. The worry was at his head. 
he felt no longer at ease in this familiar chair, but rather balanced on it alertly, so that under the table his calves were braced, so that he moved his hands carefully for fear of encroaching on what was not his, hands of a guest, hands uneasy at a strange table. Clara sat round now facing him. Their chairs were to the same side of the round table and close. She kept smiling. Those new things she wore were plainly stimulating her. She must have felt transformed and beautiful. Such a certainty, together with the unaccustomed alcohol, brought a vivacity to her eye, a definition to all the movements of her mouth, traces of faltering, of apology, of all the wounded humilities of a face that apologizes for itself. All those were gone, wiped away beneath the white powder. Now her face seemed to be charged with light, expressive, and in its new self-assurance, predatory. It was a face bent on effect, on making its mischief. Instinctively, it performed new tricks, attitudes learnt and stored but never before used, the intuitive mimicry of the female seducer. She smiled now largely, as though her lips enjoyed the touch of her teeth, lowered her eyelids, then sprang them suddenly open, ended a laugh by tossing her hair, only to shake the new curls in the light, raised her hand to her throat to show the throat stretched back and soft, took a piece of butter-colored marzipan and its marble white icing between the tips of her two fingers, and laughing, opened her mouth very wide, so that the tongue tip came out to meet the icing, and the teeth and lips and mouth were wide, and then suddenly shut in a coy gobble. And all this time, while they ate and drank and talked and joked, Rakes sat watching her, smiling his lips, but eyes heavily bright, and fixed like pewter as the trouble roasted his brain. He knew now fully what he wanted to do. His hand, as if it were some other hand not connected to his body, reached away to where the parcel of ties lay open, and its fingers were playing with the string. They played with it overwillingly, like the fingers guiding a paintbrush to over-decorate a picture, like fingers that pour more salt into a well-seasoned cook-pot. Against the knowledge of what he wanted, the mind still balanced its danger, calculated the result and its difficult aftermath. Once again, this was gluttonous, like deciding to take one more drink. Sense of the moment. Imagination of the result, the moment's desire, the mind's warning. Twice he leant towards her, measuring the distance, then drawing back. His mind told him he was playing. He was allowed such play. Nothing would come of it. Then, abruptly it happened. That playing, like a swing pushing higher and then somersaulting the circle, mounted on its own momentum, grew huge and boundless, swelled like fired gas. Those fingers, tautened, snapped the string. He was up off the chair and over Clara. The string, sharp and hempen, 
bit into her neck. Her lips opened in a wide laugh, for she thought he was clowning up suddenly to kiss her, and then stretched themselves wider, then closed into a bluish cough and the last little sounds. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's stories. I really liked them. I'm so happy for the ending of that last one, as, you know, bad or as gruesome as it was. It feels like it was a warning to those who try to change people, especially murderous people. Let's get to the Patreon shoutouts. It's been a few weeks since I've gotten to them, so let's go. A huge, warm thank you to Ross Fisher, Aaron Clagg, Pamela White, Mary Zorn, Maritza Morales, and Duncan Winter. I am sending you all a huge, giant hug over the airwaves, and I hope you can feel it. Also, for my patrons who have been very loyal to me over the past year, I have something special coming up for you in the next few months. It's going to take a while to put together, but just know I wanted to reward you guys for hanging with me for so long. Remember to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the show with visibility and all that jazz. Also, if you're ever interested in any of my lovely sponsors, please remember to use my offer codes. It keeps them coming back and supporting the show. I always leave my offer codes in the show notes. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scare You to Sleep. Thank you to those of you to those of you who attended my little live stream on Instagram last weekend. I'll be sure to do more fun stuff like that in the future. You can join the Facebook group facebook.com slash group slash scary to sleep. Remember, there is a page and a group. You'll know you're at the group if it asks you to answer some questions before you join. If you have a story to submit, please send it to scary to sleep at gmail.com. And I think that's all folks. Now go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.